0: to get ready for sunday but mentally you know preparing i promise i don't (laughs) i don't write the sermons saturday night but uh it was just weird and then sunday morning waking up and it's like you know i don't really have to do anything you know we tuned into the service of course but so it's kind of starting to feel like there's a a little more of a, a, a routine again um but there is definitely still a, a hole in my life in that area that used to be filled by, by baseball especially. It's uh, I'm still... Longing and and waiting—that that's one of the things I just enjoy about summertime—is watching Major League Baseball. And I've been deprived of that. I, now I won't I won't I won't lie. I've had some fun watching replays of the 2011 World Series where the Cardinals won, and and I'm sure you Cub fans have enjoyed watching the 2016 World Series and seen replays of that to try and try and bridge the gap, I guess. Um, it got me thinking the other day, and, and and stick with me on this. I'm not bashing Cubs or Cubs fans here, but but just just travel with me on this one. What would it have been like if the Cubs didn't win the World Series in 2016, but instead won it this year? Whatever this year would end up looking like with a shortened season, and I was, tra- I was trying to to think through that, right? It's like, man, you know, so it's a shortened season, and then I just have this picture in my head of, of the Cubs, uh, uh, it's kind of a difficult picture, but I had it anyway, of the Cubs winning walk-off fashion at, uh, at Wrigley Field, Game 7. The players are pouring out of the dugout, celebrating, and there's crickets because it's an empty stadium, because there's no fans there. <laughs> Just like, oh, that would have been awkward. And then I went to, went to the victory parade, because in the 2016 victory parade, estimates were that there were 5 million people in Chicago, for that for that championship parade for the Cubs. That's just insane when you think about it. And then I thought, boy, if they had won this year, the 2020 victory parade, they would have to cap at fifty people, right? So wouldn't that have been awkward? Or you could space yourself out six feet, I guess, and the route would be so long that maybe by Christmas they would have finished the thing. But I you know, I well I can honestly say it's I find it easy to root against the Cubs. I do. But I can honestly say as a baseball fan, I am glad that that curse was not broken in that manner because that, <laughs> that would have just been really an absolute shame from a baseball perspective. And uh, it, again, it's just kind of one of those things that I think about as I loathe the fact that we're missing baseball this year. But, but the real reason I share that with you this morning is that uh, where we are today, finishing up Second Corinthians chapter 2, Paul talks about a, a, a kind of first century victory parade in uh, of sorts what he does is is he takes what is perhaps the most well-known symbol of of victory in in that time and place and he turns it upside down turns it on its head he he uses a a vivid picture of victory through power and conquest and he he uses it to paint an even more vivid picture of victory through sacrifice so uh, I'll show you what I mean go ahead and and either uh, open with me or or uh, click with me as dusty said second Corinthians chapter 2 is where where we will be this morning and I want to start by just reading the first uh, two verses in our passage verses 12 and 13 and in these verses what, what Paul's doing is he he kind of pulls back the curtain a little bit, if you will, regarding his personal life before he launches into this picture of, of what is called a Roman triumph. So, so look with me, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Paul says, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest, because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. Now, if you, if you remember from the, uh, the first sermon in this series, I kind of gave a little bit of background on the relationship between Paul and the church in Corinth. Uh, it, it was a relationship that consisted of at least three visits, at least, we think, four letters that he wrote back and forth. Um, and, and if you remember, the second visit that Paul made to the church was the one where where there was this painful attack. Somebody personally attacked Paul from the church. Uh, we, that, that's kind of what we talked about last week. And then after that visit, Paul wrote what what looked to be a painful letter back to the church, presumably with instructions on how they ought to handle that situation which had arisen. And so, as you can imagine, Paul Paul cares so, so deeply about this church that he's anxious to hear how did they respond to this letter that I wrote? Because it was a difficult letter. I'm sure it was a very forward letter. How, how does How is the church going to respond to that? Titus had taken that letter to the church, and so Paul was looking forward to Titus coming back to him and, and sharing what had taken place, how, how things had unfolded. Well, in the meantime, God opened up an opportunity for, for Paul to proclaim the gospel at Troas. Troas was this harbor town that was actually on the route that Titus would have been taking back from Corinth to, to meet up with Paul again. So not only was Paul excited to minister there in Troas, but but uh, he was anxiously waiting for Titus to come back as well. Well Titus was so long in coming that that Paul says that he didn't he didn't have rest in his spirit. And, and so even in the midst of, of fruitful ministry, Paul Paul kind of packed up and and left started started to go further up the road if you will to meet up with Titus sooner. I mean, this is this is how anxious Paul is in his spirit, how much he's looking forward to getting this report back. You know, uh, one thing that the church in Corinth ought to take from just this little bit of personal information that Paul shares is is that Paul cared deeply about the people in this church. Even while he's away from them, they are on his mind. Even while ministering in another town, Paul left in order to to get an update, get a report sooner from Titus. Uh, The church in Corinth cannot doubt Paul's concern and his love for them. They can't question that. Paul, Paul, Paul makes it evident through his actions, through his words. And and, and this is kind of precursor to what's coming up in, in, in some coming weeks. But what we're going to see is that false apostles who had infiltrated the church led the people to question Paul's Paul's motives. They led the people to question Paul's methods. And in light of Paul's love for them, as displayed here in just these couple verses, perhaps they had better reason to question the motives of those false apostles that had come to them. So that's something you can just kind of log away. That'll come up again down the road. But for now, let's dive into kind of the meat of today's sermon with this Roman triumph, this victory parade that I'm talking about. So look with me here as I read uh, verse 14. Paul says, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. So so those in the church at Corinth would have had no problem picturing this this scene of a Roman triumph that, that Paul is using here. Uh, it's not something we experience in today's world, so I'll, I'll do my best to kind of fill in the gaps for us. A, a Roman triumph would have been perhaps perhaps the most noteworthy celebration of that time in the Roman Empire. Um, it, and it was all centered around a Roman general and his soldiers returning home from, from a successful military campaign. And it was this grand parade that, that would take place in the heart of Rome. Now, now, because these were such newsworthy events, there, there's actually a lot of ancient descriptions of Roman triumphs that have survived through the years. And so, so we have really a lot of details about what they were like. Uh, one of the well-known historians from that time, Josephus, he writes, uh, he describes it this way. He says, It is impossible to describe the multitude of the shows as they deserve. So, so the the parade was kind of the main event of the triumph, but there was all these other things happening in and around the city of Rome as well. But, but as I said, the main event was this this victory parade, and it, and it consisted of Roman magistrates marching in it. It consisted of Roman senators. There would be priests leading bulls that would eventually be worshipped to the god Jupiter. Uh, there were people carrying loot from the victory that that the the general and his soldiers had just returned from. Um, enemy captives were, were led in chains and and uh, would either be imprisoned or executed at the end of that ceremony, at the end of the parade. They would have been ridiculed and mocked as they walked along. Quite often they were naked as they were in this parade being led to their death. Um, and then finally, at the end, you would have the, the conquering general in a chariot pulled by four horses and then following him would uh, would be his soldiers. And then all throughout this parade, there's incense burning throughout the city of Rome. Another another Roman historian uh, notes this about one specific triumph. He says that every temple was open and 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 filled with garlands and incense all throughout the city, incense was burning in, in all these different temples. So it wasn't just the sights that would have left an impression on a person who was there, but it would have been the smells of the entire thing as well. And, and since scientists tell us today that our sense of smell is the one that's most closely associated with memory, that would have really left an impression on anybody who was there to witness this grand event So those Roman triumphs, they they, they would have been the highlight of any Roman general's career. It would have been the absolute highlight. And you could probably argue it would have been a highlight even for just a Roman citizen to be able to attend one of these things. So in many ways, the Roman triumph was the ultimate picture of strength and victory in the Roman world. And again, you know, maybe perhaps one of the closest things we have today that we might think of in this manner is, is, you know, the, the sports championship parades. Right? There, there's a lot of similar elements there granted the losing team isn't isn't drug along the parade in chains to be executed but but still I mean you've got the, the players and, and the coaches riding on fire trucks or something else down the street and people gathered and cheering and and you've even got the loot right you've got the championship trophy that somebody on the, uh, in the parade route is, is carrying with them and hold it up high and so so we kind of get a, a picture of that. But what Paul does with this picture of power and victory is he turns it upside down. He turns it completely on his head. He, he challenges the church in Corinth to think about victory in a totally different way. So let me read verse 14 again. And, and based off of what I've just described, see, see if you can pick up on how Paul turns it on its head. He says, But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. So a couple, couple of points of connection there, I guess. First, it, it's not the Roman general who is the, the focal point of this triumph that Paul is describing. It's, it's Jesus Christ himself. He is the one who has secured the victory. And, and there's a lot of irony there because the Roman general rides into Rome being pulled by war horses, right? You think to a picture of Jesus back in Jerusalem. He didn't ride into Jerusalem on a war horse. He rode in on, on a donkey, on a, on a symbol of peace rather than a symbol of war. And Jesus didn't slay countless soldiers with his sword. I, instead, it was, it was his body that was pierced. He was the one who died. He was slayed upon upon the Roman cross and of course you know we know Jesus rose from the dead so so perhaps this point of connection isn't quite as shocking as the next one that Paul makes because Paul says yes it's Christ who's leading this procession but who is Christ leading in the procession according to those verses Paul says Christ leads us in triumphal procession Paul equates himself with the captives The ones who were being led behind. Well, in in the Roman triumph, it would have been in front of the Roman soldier, but who are in chains, essentially. And to top it all off, Paul, at the beginning of verse 14, gives thanks for this. He says, thanks be to God that Christ is leading this triumph and that that we are in this procession behind him. How can Paul say that? How, How can Paul think that I mean uh, the absolute worst place to be during these Roman triumphs was was in this procession in, in in the spot of these captives, being led away to their death. That's the worst place. Why why would Paul give thanks to God that he is captive to Christ? And he doesn't go into a whole lot of detail here, but he does in in Romans chapter six. Dusty read a few of those verses this morning. I want to pick up and read two more verses right where he left off. So, this is Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 20. It says, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. So basically what Paul is saying here is that we're all, we're all captive to something. We're all captive to something. and We're all being led captive by something if you use the picture of the triumph. When we are captive to sin, Paul says that, that that triumph leads straight to death. Straight to death. Once the parade gets to the end of, of the street, then we're greeted by death in the Colosseum. That's how it would have played itself out in Rome. But when the conqueror Jesus comes and when he wins the victory in our lives, we become captive to him. And what Paul says there is that in his triumph, we're not we're not being led in, in captives' as captives to death Paul would say the, the, the train that we are in we are being led as captives and the end is sanctification and eternal life there's, there's a very different thing at the end of this parade as Paul talks about and so the reason that Paul was so excited to have been conquered by Jesus is because he knew that, that this triumph that Jesus was leading would end in eternal life for him. It wouldn't end in death like it would have always done for the captives in Rome. I mean, any person in their right mind at that time, according to Roman culture, would have wanted to have been in the place of the victorious general, right the focal point of this whole thing. What Paul is saying is that, no, we really want to be in the parade following Jesus, our captor. We really want to be captive to him. And Paul says we're all captive to something. We're captive to something. We might not think that we are, but we are. When we're free from Jesus, then we are absolutely captive to sin. But the flip side of that, when we are captive to Jesus, when he's won the victory in our life, then then we are free from sin. Now we may not have Roman triumphs in our day, we don't, but, but we definitely have positions of status which, which people strive to achieve, and, and I'm not, not really talking about sports championship parades anymore, but you know we're taught to believe that, that the top of the organizational structure is, is better than the bottom, and, and we're taught to believe that those being served have more worth than those who are serving. We're taught to believe that strength is more desirable than weakness. We're taught to believe that more money is always better than less money. We're, we're taught to believe that victory comes through greatness, not, not through sacrifice. And that, that, that's what we're taught in our culture. So in many ways, we have a very similar culture to, to that of first century Rome. But that's not the kind of parade that Jesus leads. The, the ones who are blessed are not the ones standing on the sideline mocking those who've been captured. The ones who are blessed are the ones who've been captured and are captive to righteousness. They're the blessed ones. Sure, they might still be mocked and scorned by those watching from the outside, but, but they are marching straight to eternal life. And, and there's blessing in that. You know, I mean, this went against, very much against the the narrative of the culture in Paul's day, and it goes against the narrative of the culture in our own day, uh, I think, equally as much. Uh, True victory comes comes not from the masses in the city shouting our name and, and cheering us on as we go by, but true victory comes from being conquered by Jesus. Being captive to him. That's, that's where the victory lies for us, as Paul talks about here. Well, we need to talk about the, the fragrance metaphor as well, because Paul, Paul mentions it in verse 14, but then he, he, he goes on to kind of expand that in the following verses. So, so again, as I said, in the Roman triumph, incense would have been burned throughout the city. It, it would have left this indelible pression, impression upon all of the citizens of Rome. But in Paul's description, it's not, it's not the incense which provides the aroma, but it's the captives themselves. Look with me at verse 15. It says, For we are the aroma of Christ to God, among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? So, so throughout the Old Testament, sacrifices under the Old Covenant were, were always said to be a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And this goes all the way back, the first time you see it is, is way back in Genesis, Genesis chapter 8. Immediately after, after departing from the ark, Noah built an altar and he offered a sacrifice to God, which was said to be a pleasing aroma to God. And then numerous times throughout the first chapters of Leviticus, where it's describing the details for the specific animal sacrifices that that, that the people made, it says that those sacrifices were a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Now anyone who has ever ever smelled the burning carcass of an animal knows that pleasing aroma is not uh, typically how you would describe (laughs) something like that. And then, even even to, to top it off, I guess God is is not a person that he has a, a physical nose anyway. So we're not even talking about an actual smell here. You know, the reason that these sacrifices were a pleasing aroma to God is because of what they represented. So if you remember, those sacrifices were animals that that were without blemish. They were they were said to be perfect, and so they were offered to God as the result of mankind's sinfulness. And those animals gave of their very lives so that mankind could have, a, at that point, a, a semi-restored relationship with God. The act of the sacrifice is what is the a pleasing aroma to God. but it, And it's not even just limited to animals on the altar. Paul talks in a, a Philippians 4 about how sacrificial gifts that the church had given that those are considered a a pleasing, uh, a fragrant offering that's pleasing to God as well. But of course, the epitome of of what is a pleasing aroma, sacrifice to God, is the sacrifice of Jesus upon the cross. I I think you can argue that there is nothing more sweet-smelling in that sense than that sacrifice. Paul talks in Ephesians 5 and says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Paul's picking up on this. He's saying that this fragrant aroma, this sacrifice that Jesus made is a, is a sweet smelling aroma to God. And in fact, that's the very sacrifice that won the victory. That's why Jesus is leading this victory parade as Paul describes you know the Roman generals won their victories through killing the enemy. Jesus won the victory through him offering himself through his own fragrant offering upon the cross. So so the incense being burned during the Roman triumphs the, those were anything but a but a sweet smelling aroma to God. They were probably more like a terrible stench since they celebrated killing and and mockery and bondage. But the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, that, that's the most pleasant, fragrant offering to God that, that could ever be made. There's no greater display of sacrifice than, than innocent Jesus offering himself for the sins of mankind. What Paul says in, here in 2 Corinthians 2, what he says in Ephesians 5 is that once we've been conquered by Jesus, once we are captive to him, we ought to produce that same aroma. Through the sacrifice of ourselves for others. And in verse 15, that's why Paul says, We are the aroma of Christ. In Ephesians 5, Paul says, We walk in love just as Christ did. So the question we have to ask is uh, Are our lives a fragrant offering to God? Do I exude the aroma of sacrifice which is so pleasing to God? You know, the, 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 uh, the aroma of incense at the Roman triumphs impressed upon the people the connection between power and victory. It was unmistakable in those displays. But the aroma of our lives, as Paul describes, it ought to impress upon people the connection between sacrifice and victory instead of power and victory. We spread the knowledge of God as we offer ourselves as a similar fragrant offering. And sacrifice of others. Now we can't we can't be naive and assume that all people are going to joyfully receive that that message that aroma as we spread it. Paul said in verse sixteen that that to some this is the fragrance of life, but to others it's the fragrance of of death. And again, if you think back to the Roman triumph, the incense that would have filled the air. To the Roman general, to the army, to, to the citizens along the streets, that, that aroma was, was an aroma of victory. But then now think about the captives who were being led away to their death. And what they were smelling was not the aroma of victory, but the aroma of death to them. That's how they would have interpreted that. So some people will experience the aroma of, of our sacrificial lives modeled after Jesus, and, and they'll experience the fragrance of life. They'll they'll reject that old model of victory through um, through power and force. They'll surrender themselves to Jesus, and, and, and they'll be set free from sin, which leads to death, and they'll become captives to Christ, which re- leads to life. Some will receive the aroma that way, but others won't. Others will, will uh, smell that aroma and will discover that it leads to death because they will they will seek to continue clinging to a worldly model of victory through power and force. They'll they'll fight against Jesus. They'll they'll remain captive uh, to the sin in their lives and find that that the end result is death. Then, you know, Jesus is the conqueror. He he rightly rides in the chariot as the focal point of the triumph. To those who have accepted him, the, the fragrance that comes from that is the fragrance of life. But to those who reject him, it, it is the fragrance that leads to death. Now, we're, we're not to force people <laughs> to accept it one way or the other. We can't force people to accept it one way or the other. We, we are to simply spread it. We are simply to to be that fragrant offering in the world around us. We're to live our lives out in sacrifice like Jesus did you know, when Jesus calls us to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him, I think that description in connection with, with, what, with what Paul is saying here in 2 Corinthians 2, uh, I think it paints a powerful picture of the kind of life that we're called to live as believers in Christ. It's, it's that life of self-sacrifice, uh, a life of servanthood, a life of, of being last instead of first. Honestly, a life that is a fragrant offering to God, as Paul describes it. And it is rather I- ironic that there were, there were people in Paul's day who sought to proclaim this victory of Jesus, but they, they completely missed that the message was based upon sacrifice and servanthood. So, so I'll read the last verse of chapter 2, verse 17. Paul here says, For we are not like so many, peddlers of God's word. But as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, and the sight of God, we speak in Christ. So there were, there were those who went out into the world and, and found their way into the church at Corinth who who peddled the, the message of the gospel for money. And they weren't sincere in their teaching. Rather, they, they, they said whatever they needed to say in, in order to in order to be paid for what they were doing, basically, in order to gain another speaking gig, if you will. And we can find people just like that today. We can we can find pastors and, and, and Bible teachers who will say whatever they need to from the pulpit or or in their books or in speaking engagements in front of the camera or whatever to become financially wealthy or, or influentially powerful uh, or both, maybe, seeking both. You know, that what Paul would say is that kind of life and ministry is not a fragrant offering to God. It's not marked by the aroma of sacrifice and humility that that Jesus, through which Jesus won the victory. So Paul sought to draw a distinction between himself and those kinds of false apostles. And again, we're going to see that coming up um, in future chapters as well. So, So the question to wrap up this morning is... What do you smell like? And if I would have let off with that question at the beginning of the sermon, that might have been a little awkward, but I think now we've got the context for it. So so what do you smell like this morning? What do you smell like? Do people around you or me, do they smell the, the sacrificial aroma of Jesus? Uh, I mean, there's plenty of times in my life where my sin nature is strong within me and and, and selfishness drives my attitudes and desires and actions and and honestly it can drive me nuts, but it's something that can only be defeated by Jesus, can only be defeated as, as he conquers me, if you will, and conquers my sinful nature and makes me captive to him rather than being captive to that sin nature within me. You know the the fragrance of Christ isn't isn't earned or produced within us through hard work. It's it's given to us as we yield ourselves to our captor. That's where the fragrance comes from. And so I think I think we wake up every day and and we ought to submit ourselves to Him anew. And then as we do that, we can rest assured that Christ does lead us in this triumphal procession and then he then will spread through us the the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere we go. That's what we're called to do as people being led in, in, in the victory parade of Jesus. To spread that aroma of sacrifice and servanthood to the world. That they might see Christ through that. Would you stand with me? Let's close together in prayer and and we've got a couple more songs that we're going to sing as well. God, I thank you for this picture this morning that that Paul used uh, um, to teach us about about who you are, about how you've won the victory, about what uh, what our position is in all of this. God, uh, we know we don't have these Roman triumph parades today, but but even so, I think we're we're, we're still able to make some good connections here that. Uh, that Paul is is illuminating for us, and so God, I pray that uh, that we would remember that that it is good to be held captive by You. That as, as we are enchained to You, if you will, uh, we are we are on our way to to eternal life. That it is the road to sanctification, and we praise You for that. God, I pray for, for myself and for, for each one of us that, that we would smell like you, in a sense, that, that the aroma of your sacrifice and your humility and servanthood would, would permeate the air around us. God, that it would make, make an indelible impression on, on all those who we come into contact with. God, I pray that you would, you would uh, give us that in our lives, that you would lead us and guide us, that, uh, that that sacrifice and servanthood would would come not through our own striving and efforts, but that we would just yield ourselves to you and follow after you. And God, as we continue in worship through song this morning, may you be honored, may you be glorified, may, may these truths continue to be impressed in our hearts and in our minds. God, it's in your name that we pray this morning. Amen.